example, when we're going expositionally through a book, in other words, verse by verse through a book, for you to be here every week so that uh, you can just keep up with the flow of, of, of what is happening. For you folks who are guests with us today, we do want you to realize that you're, you're coming in in the middle of our study of the book of Revelation. Right now we're about midway. We've made our way to, to chapter 13. So why don't you get your study sheet going there? Why don't you get your Bible, turn it to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll get started this morning. <clears throat> but as Frank was just talking about there with the, the book of 1 Thessalonians and how this book written to the church to teach us about the events of the last days, specifically the rapture in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and then he moves in in chapter 5 to the, the second coming of Christ. And we do see a very practical application to the church in the last days, that this is a model church that he is he's laying out for us in, in this book of 1 Thessalonians. And as Frank mentioned, every chapter ends with a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And we've, we've gotten ourselves into some heavy-duty stuff in the book of Revelation. I mean, last week we were, we were down there, weren't we? I mean, that was not the milk of the word that we were in last week. And, you know, you, you might come to the place somewhere in the, the middle of all this thing where you're saying, okay, now, why are we doing this again? Why, why is it so important, if we're going to be raptured out of here, why is it so important that we understand all this about the Antichrist and all that? And you know what, let me just tell you, the reason it's so important is because God put it in there, first of all. And what he's told those of us that hold his word and have been given the commission to feed the flock of God, which is among you, which he purchased with his own blood, what he says is that we are to make sure that we teach the whole counsel of God, everything that's in there. And let me just tell you, what this book does as we begin to see these things, and we begin to see how all of these things that the book says are going to happen in the last days, and we look around us and we see that these things are happening, what it tells us is that very, very soon Jesus Christ is going to come back for his church. And the Bible says that every man that has this hope in him does something. What does he do, y'all? He purifies himself. And now listen, if you're losing your way in the midst of all of this, one of the reasons you want to get this down is because if you'll understand that Jesus is about to come again, it is going to have a purifying effect on your life. And if we were to be quite honest about it, and we were just to, to look inside of every single one of us, what we'd probably find that's going on right now is we're struggling to remain pure in the midst of a world that is anything but pure. What we're doing on, on Sunday mornings in the book of Revelation, we're getting the practical side uh, of, of life and of Christianity on, on Sunday night. But this is a, a reminder every single week of your life that Jesus is getting ready to come back, and we need to be prepared for that. But now in Revelation chapter 13, for you folks who, who are guests with us, just so that you know where we are in this thing, because we don't want you to be lost this morning. John, when he receives this revelation, which is approximately in 95 A.D., what we find in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation is he is catapulted forward in time to the day of the Lord. In fact, he probably was catapulted ahead in time to what would be for us just a couple of years from now. That was what was the present for him. He was catapulted to the time that the Bible refers to 
as the day of the Lord. That is a period of time that basically begins after the rapture of the church, which is the removal of all of the people on this planet who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. The day of the Lord picks up there, runs through the seven years of tribulation, and of course culminates the day when Jesus Christ will literally come back to this planet and then he will set up his millennial kingdom. Okay, so he's catapulted forward in time to that time. And from that perspective, he's told to write in three tenses about that which is past. And from the standpoint of somebody that's just been catapulted to the day of the Lord, what would have just been past is the entire church age. And we found in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, that is the past to John that he's writing about. He writes about the church age, and he does so by using seven letters from Jesus to seven churches. And we found as we began to go through those, that what those represent are seven periods of church history that basically pick up where the book of Acts leaves off, brings you all the way up to the rapture. And then the rapture takes place in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and verse 1. And in chapters 4 and 5, he talks about what's going on in heaven after that event. Then when we come to chapter 6, what he begins to do is he begins to explain what is going to be taking place on this planet after the church has been removed after the church has been raptured and is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ he's explaining what is going to take place on the earth and what he does in chapter 6 through 19 is he brings us four times through the tribulation period through four different figures the first time that he brings us through he does so through the opening of seven seals of a book that are opened then he brings us through for a second time and he brings us through the sounding of seven trumpets. Angels blow seven trumpets, and in those trumpet judgments, we see what is going to be unfolding on this planet during the time of tribulation. Now, when we come into Revelation chapter 13, where we are right now is we're coming now through the third of the four times that he's bringing us through the book of Revelation. Okay, so now we, we're, it, this began when we were in chapter 12. It goes from chapter 12, 13, and 14. He's bringing us the third time through the tribulation. This time, he does so by revealing to us seven personages, or seven persons, if you will, the sixth of which we find in chapter 13, in verse 1, who is the beast. And what chapter 13 is letting us know is that in the last days, right before the return of Jesus Christ to this planet, the greatest, the absolute greatest political leader in the history of civilization is going to emerge out of the area that we refer to today as the Mediterranean area, the area which just happens to be the focal point of the entire world right now. And this leader, the Bible says, and we've seen this as we've begun to look through this over the last six weeks, the Bible says that this one who is going to emerge out of the Mediterranean area is going to be the most incredible being that you have ever in a million years imagined in your wildest imagination. He is going to be dynamic. He's going to be insightful. He is going to be the smoothest operator that has ever graced this planet. He is going to be charismatic, and I use that term in the general sense of the word. We talk about somebody having a winsome or a, 
a charismatic personality. I also use the word in the modern definition of that. He is going to be extremely, extremely gifted, and he is going to manifest power, the like of which has not been seen since Jesus Christ was carrying out his ministry on this earth. And here comes this guy, and in just a relatively short period of time, his empire will be the most extensive empire in the entire history of mankind because what we find in Revelation chapter 13 is he is literally going to take charge of the entire world. And at the beginning, when he first comes on the scene, he is going to appear to be the, the savior of the world, and everybody's going to think he's wonderful. And then after three and a half years, the true nature of this one is going to be revealed, and he is going to emerge at that time as a, a Satan-possessed, Satan-empowered person who hates God, who hates God's people, who hates anything that is connected to either one of those. And he is the one that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. And again, the one that we see here in chapter 13 and verse 1 is referred to as the beast. And you'll notice on your study sheet that we, we began looking in chapter 13 at this one, and we saw, first of all, the unique parentage of this false Prince or the Antichrist. We're trying to look at his background. We're trying to see who this guy really is and who he'll really be. We found, first of all, in looking at his family lineage, that he is going to be a Gentile, and by that we mean he'll be a Roman, a Greek, a Babylonian, a Syrian, and of course, all of those letting us see that he is going to be of composite nationality. He is also a Jew. He'll be of a composite race as well. And then number three, we saw that he is both a real and a representative person. And we spent most of our time last week talking about that fact, because if you do not see that, there's going to be some things as we're going through chapter 13 that are just going to, you're going to miss them. There's just going to be some things you're not going to be able to place unless you understand that, yes, he is a real person made of flesh and blood, just like you and I, and yet at the same time, he is representative of a kingdom. And last time, what we did is we looked through the Word of God, and we found that there is most definitely a biblical precedence for God referring to a king by referring to a kingdom, and referring to a kingdom by referring to a king. They're used synonymously the same way that we would refer to Hitler. We refer to Hitler as a real man, and yet when we refer to uh, the battle that we fought against Hitler, we're using that in the terms of a kingdom. Uh, we, we use it in terms of a representative of Germany. And the same is true with the Antichrist, or this, this beast that we see in chapter 13. And now let's look at the second thing this morning about the unique parentage of this false prince. Look at verse 2 with me, if you will. John says, and the beast which I saw was like, okay? And this is going to be letter B on your outline. His family likeness. His family likeness. So we move from his family lineage in verse 1 to his family likeness in verse 2. And check out what John says this beast is like. He says in verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth 
as the mouth of a lion. And whereas in verse 1 we found that the beast or the Antichrist is of composite race and nationality, we find in verse 2 that he is a composite beast. Now listen, what that simply means is this. He is several animals combined in one. He's several animals combined in one. Okay, now I'm just trying to emphasize that so you can file it in your head so that we can begin to think about this thing. Okay, now when you compare Scripture with Scripture in verse 2, what you find as far as his likeness is concerned is that first of all, this beast of Revelation 13 is like the beast that is described in Job 40. And that's on your study sheet. And I'll give you a chance to, to write it. And after you've written that, why don't you turn back there, Job 40. He is like the beast described in Job 40. <clears throat> All right, now, now, now listen very, very carefully. Write as much as you, you can. We, we've talked about the, the prophetic application of the book of Job on, on several different occasions. And, and just to, to jolt your memory and to set us up for what we're going to see here in Job chapter 40, let me just remind you that the prophetic application of the book of Job is the same exact context of Revelation 12, 13, and 14. Okay, now, and just in case you're zoning out on me. Okay, I want to say that again. Okay, now, now y'all work with me here, okay? The prophetic application of the book of Job is the same exact application. It's the same exact context of what we're dealing with in Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14. It's all about the Jew in the tribulation. The Jew in the tribulation. And in the book of Job, what you find is that first of all, the whole story of Job's life takes place in the land of Uz, which is always connected in the Bible to Edom, which, and, and Edom is where Petra is. Petra, of course, is the place of the rock, which we saw back in Revelation chapter 12. Okay, just to get you thinking here. The book is all about, the book of Job, it's all about a man whose name means hated. And he is persecuted by the devil and sits in tribulation for a period of seven days and seven nights while his friends look helplessly on, believing in their hearts that he must be getting what he deserves. And the connection, folks, to the book of Revelation chapter 12 and 13 is just so absolutely obvious that we, I feel embarrassed even having to, to call it to your attention because Revelation 12 and 13 is all about a hated group of people that is called the Jews who are persecuted by the devil who, like Job, will be in tribulation for seven days and seven nights in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the 70th week, which is the one remaining week in Daniel's prophecy and that, that week of Daniel's prophecy is a week of years, as we've talked about. Seven days and seven nights, seven years of tribulation that will come to this planet, which is referred to in the Bible as the time of Jacob's or 
Israel's trouble and just take a wild stab, y'all, and where Revelation 12 says that Israel's going to be during that time of tribulation, it's going to be in Edom, Petra, the place of the rock. And you know what's going to happen during that time? The whole world is going to helplessly look on, and guess what they're going to be thinking in their hearts? The Jews are getting what they deserve. And you see right now, everything that the Jews do, people get all all bent about everything that the Jews do. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they're right in everything that they're doing, but I will tell you this, they're God's people. And when they do their, their thing, the whole world is wanting to see them get something, and they're going to get it during the tribulation period. And, and you can begin to see all of the, these connections. Revelation 12 says that they'll be in the place of the rock, the last half of the tribulation period, or the last 42 months. And the book of Job, coincidentally enough, has 42 chapters. But other than that, there's no similarities between the book of Job and Revelation 12 through 14. But by the time you get to Job chapter 40, Job, who, who started out so incredibly strong and so patient and so full of faith, by the time you get to chapter 40, he's floundering around a little bit in his, his faith. And what it happens by the time you get here is he's begun to question God. He's questioning God, and God has a real unique way of answering Job's questions. Job, or God, gets on a roll here, and he asks Job a series of over 70 questions in a row. Okay, so you get in the picture? Job gets this questioning mindset toward God, and so God just says, Hey, you, you want to question me? Well, I've got some questions for you. And over 70 questions in a row, and Job's answer to God's questions is basically, uh, he's dumbfounded. He has nothing to say. But what God actually does as he's firing out these questions to Job in chapters 38 to 41 if you begin to look at what he's really talking about there in these questions, what you begin to find out is he's asking Job to consider creation. And by the time that God gets finished with his questions and, and calling up creation, what God has done is he has most definitely established himself and, and his absolute sovereignty over all of creation. But what's interesting is in the midst of all of this uh, talk about creation, in the midst of all of this stuff, what God does in this section is he mentions 14 different animals. 14. Now, we know that the number seven is God's number of completion and perfection in the Bible. We know that number, the number two is the number of witness or confirmation. God said that at the mouth of two witnesses shall a matter be established. And apparently what God is wanting to confirm and establish very clearly in Job's mind is the perfection of his work and that he makes no mistakes. And yet what's interesting is that the, and check this out now, the 13th beast, that God mentions. The thirteenth beast that God mentions, what Job chapter 40 and verse 15 calls behemoth, 
It just happens to be this 13th beast where basically everybody and their brother just kind of bails out in the book of Job, and they'll, they'll come to Behemoth in verse 15, and they'll say, now, you know, it's very difficult to know what this animal actually is, and, and if you look at the footnote on your Bible or if you read a commentary on this thing, what, what you're going to find is that people are going to say that this behemoth is either an elephant or a hippopotamus, an extinct dinosaur, or a mythological beast of some kind. Now, it, it, are, the, are the papers not right? Or Oh, it just sounds like the wave going right now. It, I, it, it sounds like everybody's looking for it. I, okay, now, now you getting this? People are going to come to Job chapter 40 and verse 15, and they're going to try to get you to believe that what it is is an elephant, a hippopotamus, an extinct dinosaur, or a mythological beast that nobody can ever really be dogmatic about. And yet understand that the people who would think that this is an elephant or a hippopotamus or an extinct dinosaur or a mythological beast would be the same people who, in spite of all of the obvious connections that I just rattled off there between the book of Job and Revelation 12 through 14, they would say, no, it has nothing to do with the Jew in the tribulation. Okay, so now just understand that that's the people that we're, we're dealing with. But you see, if you understand that the book of Job is dealing with the Jew in the tribulation and you keep Job 40 in that context, you know what you find is really happening here when God tells Job to consider this 13th beast that God calls behemoth? You know what's happening here, y'all? God is actually revealing to Job the source of his persecution and tribulation. Now, let me show you what I mean here. Look, look at Job chapter 40 and verse 15. God says to Job, Behold now, behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Now, just stop there for just a second, and let's, let's just talk for a second about this word behemoth. The word behemoth is what is called a transliteration. A transliteration, and what that means is that when you're, you're translating from one language to another, and of course the uh, original language of the book of Job, Job would have penned this in Hebrew, and so it, we're coming from the Hebrew into the English, and when you're translating from one language into another, there are some words that you come to that don't have an equivalent in the language that you're translating into. And, and sometimes what, when, you, when, you, when you come to a word like that, you can either translate the definition of the word, or you can tra transliterate the word. That is, you simply take the word from the Hebrew and just plug that puppy right on into the English version. And, the classic example that I always use to help people to understand this thing is the word tortilla. Okay, the word tortilla is not an English word, it's a Spanish word. And we use the Spanish word in our vocabulary because there's no English equivalent of a tortilla in English. Okay, and so what we do is we take that word tortilla and we transliterate it, if you will, in its usage into our language, and the reason that we do that is so that when we go to Don Pablo's or Chi-Chi's, we don't have to sit around the table and say, hey, uh, 
would you pass me one of those small, circular, flat pieces of bread over there? You know, I mean, it can get just a little bit redundant there. And so, you know what we do? We just borrow the word. Okay, you got that? Is that simple to understand? Okay. It's exactly what has taken place with the word behemoth. It's actually a Hebrew word that when the King James translators came to this word, they believed that it would be better translated, or uh, it would be better transliterated than translated. And so that what they did is they just left the word alone, put the, the Hebrew word in there, gave it an English spelling so that we could pronounce the thing, and that's what's, that's what's going in verse 15 of chapter 40. You say, well, what does the Hebrew word behemoth mean then? And of course, I, I can tell you that, not because I know Hebrew, but because I've got the same tools that you have available to you. But w what's interesting is that when I give you what the word behemoth means, it's really not going to tell you any anymore. The, the word behemoth simply means animals. It means animals. Okay, now, now, now listen. It doesn't mean animal. It means animals. It is a plural word. The, the O-T-H ending on that Hebrew word, that's the way that they would show the plural form. It is a plural word. Okay, but watch what happens when you plug that definition into the context. Look at verse 1. Behold, now animals, right? Behold now, animals which I made with thee. He, singular, eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his, singular, strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. And listen, it's that way all the way through the passage. Now you just step back from that, and you say, okay now, Either God isn't real good with his grammar in the English language, or there's something that he's trying to get us to see here. And which do you reckon it is? Okay, I bet, just bet he's trying to get us to, to see something. Okay, what would God be trying to get us to see by referring to a singular animal that is really animals? Okay, and you see, now listen, that's exactly what John is describing for us back in Revelation chapter 13. He saw a singular beast or animal rise up out of the sea that was a composite of several different animals. And you just start, once you make that connection, you just start backing up from this thing and you, you check this out. And what you find is that this... Thirteenth beast in God's lineup in the book of Job that is a composite of animals is described in detail, coincidentally enough, in Revelation chapter 13. And in Revelation 13, he's identified as the Antichrist, which is actually a man that is empowered by the dragon or Satan. In a book of the Bible that just happens to use the word dragon... 13 times, and this 13th beast, who is described in Revelation 13, just happens to be the prophetic application of the first king of rebellion on this planet, who is found in Genesis chapter 10, and is a preview of the Antichrist, a man by the name of Nimrod, who just happens to be the 13th from Adam. 
and you just begin to look at that thing and go, boy, that's real coincidental that this would be the 13th beast that God would bring in front of Job's face. And when you begin to see all of that and you go back into Job 40, the likeness of this beast to the one that John describes in Revelation 13 is absolutely without question because God says, look in verse 15, that this composite animal eateth grass as an ox. Now, that might could be said of a, a lot of different animals, but let me guarantee you, God put that in there concerning this one so that when we followed the method of interpreting the Bible that he told us to use in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which of course is comparing Scripture with Scripture, what happens is when you compare Job chapter 40 and that second phrase in verse 15 and you compare Scripture with Scripture, you know what it does? It takes you right over to Daniel chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, when God, now listen to it, when God condemns King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king on the earth at that time, and he causes, God causes King Nebuchadnezzar to suffer a disease that we call lycanthropy, lycanthropy, like lycanthropy, and you know what lycanthropy is? I know you don't know what that is. You know what it is? It's when a person becomes like an animal or like a, a beast and just take a wild stab at how long Daniel chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, say that he has the condition. He just happens to have it for seven years. And guess how the Bible says that he eats? Daniel four thirty-three. He did eat grass as an ox. Ding, 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 ding. You, you begin to see that God is doing something absolutely incredible. And in case you don't remember this, we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, who, again, for seven years lived a beast-like existence. He just happens to be one of the key biblical foreshadowings or predecessors of the Antichrist. And then you start going through the description of Behemoth right, right here, and you find out that this beast is one that has incredible power. Look, look, verse 16. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. And you say, man, I've never seen a beast on this planet that, that's like that. I mean, where would, where would a beast like that get that kind of power? That's what verse 19 lets you know. He is the chief of the ways of God. And folks, there's only one of God's creatures that God speaks of with that kind of terminology. And it's the same one that's referred to in similar language in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12, where God says of Lucifer or Satan, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom, perfect and beauty. And folks, that's why Behemoth is so powerful. Just like Revelation 13, 2 says of the beast, The dragon or Satan gave him his power. And let me tell you, he's so powerful that the only way you could possibly ever stand against him, look, look at the rest of the verse, is with the sword of the one who created him. 
Verse 19 says, He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. And what sword is that, y'all? The Word of God. Listen, it's your only hope against the power of the devil. And listen, it's going to be the only hope that this world is going to have against the power of the beast or the Antichrist during the tribulation. It's going to be that sword. And you know what's going to happen then? Listen to it. He that made him is going to make his sword approach unto him. Listen to the fulfillment of it over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 8, it says of Christ at his second coming, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to consume the Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth. And Revelation 19.15 tells you what the spirit of his mouth is going to be at the second coming of Christ. Listen to it. Revelation 19.15 says that out of his, the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ goeth a sharp, what? A sharp sword, which is the word of God. So check it out. If you want to understand what the family likeness of this beast is that John saw rise up out of the sea in Revelation 13. First of all, you'll never really understand this beast unless you understand that he is like the beast described in Job chapter 40. And you know what? I believe that God chose the words that he uses in Job chapter 40 verses 15 through 19 to line up perfectly with what we would see in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 2 so that there'd be no way in the world that we could possibly miss that connection. But not only is this beast in Revelation 13 like the beast in Job 40, he's also like the beast described in Daniel 7. He's like the beast described in Daniel 7. And if you can understand, again, what John was actually seeing in Revelation 13 and verse 2 when he says that he's, the, the beast that he saw was like a leopard and his feet were as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of of a lion. If you're going to understand that, you'll never do it apart from understanding what God was allowing Daniel to see in Daniel chapter 7. Now again, the, the way that God said that he was going to reveal this, this book to us is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And you'll see as we get into Daniel chapter 7, the direct correlation that it has with Revelation chapter 13. Now, In Daniel chapter 7, in verse 1, Daniel has a vision. And you'll, you'll notice in, in verse 2 that he begins to tell us what it was that he actually saw in the vision. Verse 2 says, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven. And of course, those are the same four winds that John talked about in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1. Do you remember that? The four winds. And Daniel says here that these four winds strove upon the great sea. Okay, now everybody answer this out, out loud, okay? What sea is it that he's talking about here? The, the what? 
the Mediterranean Sea, okay? So you've already got this major connection going. Verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up from the sea. Okay, John over there, when he sees this beast, says that the beast came up out of the sea. But, but you'll notice that Daniel says that he saw four beasts come up out of the, the sea. And he very distinctly clarifies that force at the end of the verse by saying that these four beasts were diverse one from another. Or in other words, there were four different or separate beasts. And of course, we, we've already seen that the beast John saw was one composite beast. He was several different beasts in one, but now don't let that cause you to miss the connection here, because notice Daniel says in verse 4 that the, the first, that is the first beast he saw was like a lion, and in verse 5 he says, and behold another beast, a, a second like to a bear, and then verse 6 he says, after this I beheld and lo, another like a leopard, and then he says in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Okay, now, now listen. The, the fourth beast Daniel saw was an unnamed beast. All he does for us is describe what he was like. You say, okay, well, what does all this mean? Okay, well, the good news for us is Daniel didn't know what it meant either. And so he asked in the passage, what does all this mean? Okay, and, and drop down to verse 15. Obviously, an angel is somewhere close and is going to help him to understand what he actually saw. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Okay, now we don't have the time to, to go into a lot of detail on this. But, but you remember back in Daniel chapter 2. You remember the king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this incredible image. Okay, do you, do you guys remember all this? He, he has this dream of this incredible image, and the image had a head of gold, it had chest and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs were of brass, and he had legs of iron. But you remember, he, he has the, the vision uh, of the, this thing, and, and when he wakes up, and he knows that he's had some kind of a dream, but he, when he wakes up, he can't remember what it was that he was dreaming about. And so you remember what he did? He pulls together all the soothsayers and the magicians, all the psychics, as it were, of, of his day. He pulls the guys together and says, uh, Hey, guys, tell me what my dream was. And they said, Well, hey, we'll give you the interpretation of the thing if you tell us what the dream is. He says, No, I don't remember what it was. You tell me what the dream is, and then give me the interpretation. They're saying, Hey, nobody can do that. So here comes Daniel along. Okay, And not only does Daniel tell what the dream was, but Daniel gives the interpretation of it. And when you know, he's heralded as a great guy, he says, Hey, this is the same because of me, man. God, just, God did this thing. God gave me the ability to do it. And, and the interpretation back in Daniel chapter 2 was the fact that there would be, now, now listen, there would be four kings 
or four kingdoms that in succession would be the dominant world power. That's what this whole vision is. It's real simple. He's saying there's going to be four kings or kingdoms that are going to come in succession. And those four kingdoms would be, first of all, the Babylonian kingdom or the Babylonian empire represented in the head of gold. It would be followed by the Media Persian Empire, the Media Persian Empire, which was represented in the chest and arms of silver. And that empire would be followed by the Grecian Empire, represented in the belly and thighs of brass, which would then be overtaken by the Roman Empire, represented in the legs of iron. Okay, now that's Daniel chapter 2. Now when we come to Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel sees the four beasts that rise up out of the sea, which Daniel 7.17 explains to us are four kings or kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. It seems apparent that these are the same kingdoms that were talked about back in chapter 2. So that the lion would represent the Babylonian Empire. That's the first one there. The lion would represent the Babylonian Empire. The bear would represent the Media Persian Empire. The leopard would represent the Grecian Empire. And that fourth unnamed beast, that, that ferocious composite beast, is the Roman Empire. It, it's the same kingdoms being talked about in both places. It's just that Nebuchadnezzar's vision was seeing the kingdoms from man's perspective, Daniel was seeing those same kingdoms from God's perspective. And you see the way that this thing shakes down, y'all, is man looks to government for the answers of all of the injustices and all the incongruencies of life. He looks to human governments as a great help to him. And in his mind, government is a, is a beautiful image. It, 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 it represents wealth and power and majesty, just like Nebuchadnezzar's great vision, great image. God, however, looks at those same kingdoms, and the image that he sees is not some glorious colossus that's, that's standing in all of its majesty. What God sees is a succession of wild, ravenous beasts that are devouring one another. God doesn't see human government as a help to man. He sees human government as a great hindrance and threat to man. And he, he looks down and he, he looks through the corridors of history and he says, you know, you look at it and you see this incredible thing. He said, I look and I just see these beasts that are just devouring one another. And the difference between the visions in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 you know what? It's really the same difference that we talked about from Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 13. Do you remember when we talked about how man looks at the Antichrist? You remember how man saw him back in Revelation chapter 6? He, he saw him as this incredible guy, this knight in shining armor. He, he sees him as the savior of the world. Revelation 13, God gives you his perspective on the thing. He sees the Antichrist as a seven-headed, ten-horned, ravenous beast 
who will be the source of the world's problems. And you know what? Don't, don't ever lose sight of the fact, folks, that when Jesus was on this planet, he, he laid down a, a real key principle that some of you probably to this point have missed. What Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 and verse 15 is that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And you know what? You can just about bank on it. Man looks at something and man gets all stoked and all excited about something. You can just about guarantee that it's going opposite what God thinks and what God sees when he looks at that thing. See, man gets all hyped and all excited about religion. God doesn't get very excited about religion. God thinks it stinks. It's an abomination. Because religion is man reaching to God when Christianity is God reaching to man. Man gets all, as long as you're sincere and as long as you believe and as long as, you know, he looks at it and he thinks religion is great. God says, it's an abomination. And you can just go through everything that man thinks is so cool. Science, God says, now God is into science because he created all of it, but he calls it in the Bible, science falsely so-called. That's the world science. God, the whole world, you know, well, you know, what the, the evolutionists have been discovering for centuries and centuries, God says it's an abomination. You can go through every single thing that is on this planet that man gets all stoked about, and I'm telling you, it stinks in the sight of God. It's an abomination to God. Here, here is the Christian world right now, and they're all stoked about the religious unity that they smell coming. And God says, it's an abomination to me. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And if you hold to this book, it's going to divide you. And it just goes across the board. And so here in Daniel chapter 2, man sees human government and sees this powerful, wealth, and majestic being. God says, uh, it's beasts that are just seeking to devour one another. Okay, enough of all that. But, but I want you to see here that, that Daniel says that these four beasts are four kingdoms, four successive kingdoms that would be the dominant world power. And, and now check out the connection that they have to the beast that John saw in Revelation 13. Okay, now the first three beasts that Daniel saw, he said, were like a lion and a bear and a leopard. And then came the fourth unnamed composite beast. All right, now, now listen very carefully. The composite beast that John saw, he said, was like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Okay, now, now listen. It's the same exact animals, but in the exact opposite order. You say, well, what's up with that? And again, I mean, you're, you're getting ready to see right now just how incredible the Word of God is, how detailed God is on this thing. See, Daniel is sitting here in approximately 600 B.C. And from Daniel's standpoint, he sees a lion, a bear, and a leopard giving way to an, a kingdom that would be represented by an unnamed beast. Okay, the reason he sees it like that is because Daniel's prophecy was looking forward 
to what would come to pass in relationship to these world kingdoms, whereas John comes along and John sees one unnamed beast that is like a leopard and a bear and a lion because he's looking, what? He's looking backward at what had already come to pass in relationship to these world kingdoms. And it's just absolutely incredible. Daniel is saying, here are the powers that are going to rule the world from this point forward. The Babylonian, the Media Persian, the Grecian, and then the Roman. Here's John says, now the way this thing goes is here you got the Roman and then the Grecian and the Media Persian waking way back to Babylon. You say, okay, well, why does Daniel see four beasts and John just sees one? And it's a great question, and yet it's really not real difficult to answer once you understand. Now, now follow this. When the Babylonian Empire, now this is back in Daniel's day, when the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Media Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire didn't cease to exist. It existed within and became a part of the Media Persian Empire. And when the Media Persian Empire was taken over by the Grecian Empire, it didn't cease to exist either. It existed within and became a part of the Grecian Empire. And then when the Roman Empire came along, it was the same exact thing. And it's kind of like the, the old story of, you know, the, the, the woman who uh, ate the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly, you know. And then she, you know, she eats the spider to eat the fly. And then she eats the mouse so the mouse could eat the spider to eat the fly. And then she swallows the cat to eat the mouse, to eat the spider, to eat the fly, and you know, it's just one, what's up with that, y'all? I thought that was a smooth illustration, man. It's exactly what those, those, those beasts are doing. They're, they're, they're still existing within one another. Okay, now, now listen, we talked about this last week. That old Roman empire, Okay, now that's the one that Daniel would have been talking about here in Daniel chapter 7, which was the power in Jesus' day when Jesus came along. That old Roman Empire, what it was, was a federation of ten nations. In other words, that Roman Empire was comprised of ten sovereign states or, or ten nations. Now that empire, that old Roman Empire, as we talked about last week, that empire was never taken over by any other empire. What we saw is through its corruption, that empire just kind of, as far as its prominence and its preeminence on this planet, as far as a, a military or a political power, it, it, it just got to the place to where you couldn't see it. You know, it, it's described in Revelation chapter 13 as a wound to the head that was as it were to death. Okay, that empire, it was there, but it never actually died. And what, what John is, is talking about in Revelation chapter 13 is that when he, he looks and he sees this beast, when, when the beast comes on the scene in the tribulation period, that deadly head wound is going to be healed, and the old Roman empire is going to be revived, and when it is, what he is saying in this one composite beast 
is that it will embody all of the characteristics of those four world empire as world empires as seen in the leopard and the bear and a lion and he says they're all going to be in one composite beast one composite monster and just like that old roman empire it too the revived roman empire is going to consist it's going to be comprised of a federation of ten nations or ten sovereign states represented in Revelation 13 and verse 1 by the ten horns and the ten crowns on those ten horns. Now, what is so interesting, folks, and boy, yeah, oh, we, we don't have the time to get into this. We will but by the time we get out of the book of Revelation. But right now on this planet, there is what we call the European Economic Community the European common market. How many of you have heard this, this terminology? Do you understand what that is? It is the foreshadowing of that ten-nation confederacy that is going to be the revived Roman Empire. And folks, listen, though the world doesn't have a clue as to what this thing is all about, those nations are all together and to date, you know how many are comprised in that nation or that, that, that confederacy? How many? You know what? It, it varies from month to month, week to week. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, you know how many it'll have? It's going to have 10. I mean, it's, sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 9, sometimes it's 14, but that is the... the, the, the revived Roman Empire that is going to be on this planet and the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to take control of that thing. And I'm telling you, we, we spent a lot of time last week talking about all of the things that have taken place on this planet in recent years to show us that the stage is set for the Antichrist to come do his thing. And, and folks, I'm just telling you, we are watching history unfold in such an unbelievably miraculous way, and yet even most Christians don't have a clue as, as to what is, is, is taking place. But I'm just telling you, Amos chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, prepare to meet thy God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to just tell you, you need to prepare to meet your God because the days are closing in. But watch what Daniel goes on to say here. Now, if you're in Revelation 13, go back to Daniel 7. Watch what Daniel <clears throat> goes on to say in verse 8. Daniel says, <clears throat> I, I considered the horns. Okay, now we, we just saw that there were ten of them. That old Roman Empire was comprised of ten nations. When the Antichrist comes on, and it's the revived Roman Empire, it's going to be consisting of ten nations once again. He said, I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another little horn. Now, what we're going to see here in just a second is that is the Antichrist himself. He is referred to in this passage as the little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And the way that this thing is going to shake down, folks, is that the ten nation confederacy will be in place 
And then when the Antichrist comes on the scene, what's going to take place is seven of the kings or seven of the leaders of that, that ten-nation confederacy, seven of them will willingly give their allegiance to the Antichrist, but three of them won't. They'll rebel, and at that point, the Antichrist will pluck them up by the roots. In other words, he's going to overthrow them. Go on in verse 8. And behold... In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And folks, listen, there's no doubt about who this is. That's exactly what Revelation 13.5 says of the beast or the Antichrist. Revelation 13.5 says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. And, and, and go on in, in verse 9. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Okay? These, these, these nations, they're going to be cast down. He says, I, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Who's that, y'all? Whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Who's that? It's exactly what Joe, or Jude is talking about. That time when Christ comes at his second coming with ten thousands of his saints. He says in verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Second Thessalonians says that he's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance. And that sword, the fire that comes out of his mouth is going to consume the Antichrist. Drop down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And what you have here is talking about that time. The Antichrist is going to be on the scene, and he's going to be ruling over the planet, but all of a sudden, he says, one like the Son of Man came, and buddy, he was ticked. And he had flaming fire, and he came to this planet, and he just annihilated th this one, and he set up a kingdom which shall not be destroyed, okay? Now, we understand all of that pretty clearly right now. This is where Daniel says, I, I Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. He didn't understand what it was that he was really seeing. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made me know the interpretation of these, or, uh, of these things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake 
very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. This is what Revelation chapter 13, verse 7 says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, or earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. We talked about that. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This is during the tribulation period. And think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. How many years is that, y'all? Three and a half years, okay? This is the exact context of Revelation 13. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. And what he's, what he's seeing here, now, now listen real carefully. What Daniel's seeing here is he says, I, I saw four beasts. They were four kings. They were four kingdoms that would comprise the Babylonian Empire, which would give way to the Media Persian Empire, which would give way to the Grecian Empire, which would give way to the Roman Empire. And that Roman Empire is going to stick around. It's going to take a deadly wound to the head, and you're not going to see it for a long time. But then... It's going to get revived. It's going, to, it's going to come back. And it's going to have as its head this little horn, the Antichrist, and he's going to dominate the world. He's going to rule the world. He's going to subdue the entire thing. And then all of a sudden, heaven's going to open. The Son of Man's going to come back. And he's going to devour him. He's going to set up his kingdom. And he will rule over the entire world. And that's what Daniel chapter 7 is talking about. It's what Revelation chapter 13 is talking about. So do you see what I'm talking about? When we, the, the whole point of this is to get you to see his family likeness. He's like the beast in Job 40. And if you don't understand that, you'll never really understand what in the world the book of Job is really all about because what God's doing is saying, Job, I know you don't quite understand all of this, but let me just tell you, this whole thing started. You, you, you started questioning me. I, I'm going to give you the answer in that 13th beast. He's the source of your persecution and your tribulation. And what we begin to see is the one that is going to be the source of the persecution in the tribulation period is going to be this same exact beast that was seen in Job 40. Daniel has a vision in Daniel chapter 7 comprised of the same exact beasts that are found in Revelation chapter 13. And what he says is that kingdom is going to be set up by that little horn, by the Antichrist, but that kingdom is going to get smashed by the Lord Jesus Christ and folks, listen, 
All this stuff that we're talking about here is stuff that is going to be taking place in the very, very, very near future. Every single thing is set up so that this can begin to unfold on this planet. And the thing that is going to catapult all of this into, into being is that event that we talked about, the rapture of the church, where all of the people on this planet who know the Lord Jesus Christ will be bodily removed off of this globe to enter into the presence of Jesus Christ and will escape the persecution and the tribulation that are gonna, that's going to take place on this planet. And if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ. As I said from Amos chapter 4 and verse 12, the command is prepare to meet thy God. The way that you prepare to meet God is to be clothed in his righteousness which happens the moment that you call upon his name. He takes his blood, which was shed on the cross when he came to this earth in the form of a man, in the person of Jesus Christ. He shed his blood so that when you and I would call upon his name to seek his forgiveness, he would cover us with his blood. Our sin would be removed. And that is what God is looking for when he comes and his son comes in the clouds. He will remove off of the face of this planet every single person whose sin has been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen by being religious. It doesn't happen by somebody taking water and throwing it on you. It, it doesn't happen from somebody putting you in water and putting you beneath the water to wash away your sins. There's only one thing that can wash away your sins. The Bible says... In 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. And that is the only thing that can remove your sin. It's not church membership. It's not doing good deeds, doing good works, doing religious rituals. It's none of that. It's simply calling upon the name of God, Jesus Christ, and asking him to forgive you and to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And when you will do that by faith, the Bible says at that moment, your sin will be removed. He takes up personal residence inside of you. And when the trumpet sounds at the rapture, you will be removed. And if God is speaking to your heart today about your need to do just that, the invitation that we offer to you is at the end of this service, in just a moment, our, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room, and they are going to position themselves to, to talk to you so that you might have a place where you, where you can go and say, you know what, I don't understand all of this, but, but God was doing something in me today. And, and I would like to talk to somebody about my need to receive Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to make you do anything, say anything, or coerce you. Or any, we're, we're simply here to answer your questions so that you, you have the opportunity to respond to what God is doing in your life today. And so we, we invite you, as our services conclude this morning, to come and, and talk to one of our pastors. Now, Lord, I, I do pray this morning.